Hello, I'm your host, Ray Dogum, and welcome to Vibecast. Thank you for joining us as we explore the exciting advancements in technology-enabled collaboration to excel important drug development. VibeBio seeks to find every cure for every community. We think big as no one should be left behind in the pursuit of living a healthy, happy, and productive life free from disease. Collectively, we have the skills, we have the technology, and we have the passion. We now need the community catalyst to bring it all together. That's Vibe. We see a future where communities of biopharma experts and patients collaborate to identify high potential medicines and have the ability to access capital on demand to develop them. Vibecast is our weekly informational podcast where we explore some of the hottest topics in drug development and technology innovation with the dynamic people that make up the Vibe community. Join us to learn, imagine, question, and help us identify and develop solutions together. You can find us on your favorite podcast player and YouTube, as well as Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Nadim Yaktin. Nadim created the precedent-driven innovation approach and applied it while consulting with pharmaceutical clients. He began his career with Johnson & Johnson and Novartis in a number of U.S. and global strategic positions. He is also co-founder of Just Ask Lucy, which is a web-based tool for businesses and leaders to help them spark their own creative breakthroughs. Nadim currently teaches PDI at Stanford's Graduate School of Business Executive Education Program, and he also co-designed and co-taught the Strategic Innovation Consulting Lab at Columbia Business School. Nadim, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Ray. Great to be here. Awesome. I'm looking forward to your presentation today. So I'll let you take it from here and introduce yourself and talk about uh, precedent-driven innovation. Thanks, Ray. So um, as you mentioned, uh, precedent-driven innovation uh, is an approach that I developed along with many um, uh, leaders in this space. I think it's worth it maybe to step back and just talk about my journey because sure. my journey really led me to be doing this for the last 17 years. So I was fortunate to start my career uh, at Johnson & Johnson, which I uh, would say is one of the best cultures and best organizations, not just in healthcare, but in any organization. Great company to grow up in, amazing people, really cared deeply about um, patients as the J&J credo uh, clearly states. Uh, and I did many roles at J&J. I started in the field, like we say, carrying the bag, moved into sales management, uh, ran the training department, then I moved into marketing. And all along that journey, Ray, we were told over and over, especially at J&J, where they were a bit ahead of the curve, we need to innovate to solve all of our really big existential threats uh, facing healthcare. And there were many of them at the time. We're talking middle 90s. So we tried to do that. Myself, all my colleagues would get in the room, we'd brainstorm, but we really didn't understand. I certainly didn't understand how innovation happens. Uh, how do you develop new ideas? How do you bring them to market? So that was something that really uh, formed my thought perspective. Then I moved to Novartis, uh, moved to Switzerland, was in a global role, much more strategic in nature, five to 20 year horizon, a lot of mergers and acquisition, entering the emerging markets. And also very importantly to the uh, Vibecast and the Vibe objective, we were assessing new compounds with high unmet need, many of them in rare disease that needed to be brought to market. But the same themes were appearing again and again. Uh, the, the same old conventional business models won't help. You really need to innovate. So when I finally decided to leave industry and come into consulting, um, I decided I really want to try to develop a uh, strategic approach to innovation. Because at the time, we, we were using design thinking with firms like Ideo and What If, who are exceptional firms, right? Really great approach. But design thinking was developed for product design. Uh, their first big client was Steve Jobs uh, at, at IDEO, and they helped them design the original Mac. And they're really good at what they do. But as we try to apply that approach to strategic challenges and come up with strategic innovative solutions, it was a bit of a struggle. So um, first thing we did was read everything there was out there in the public space. And I came across a book called Strategic Intuition, written by Professor Bill Duggan at Columbia Business School. And man, did it really <laughs> resonate with me. Because essentially what, what Bill did was study 
uh, several hundred years of innovation, innovative people, the greatest innovations of all time. And he saw many of the same patterns emerging over and over. And I'm going to talk about those in, in a minute. Uh, I have them uh, outlined in a slide for, for your viewers and listeners. So um, we took those theories, we built an approach called the precedent-driven approach to innovation, and we started applying it right away. Uh, at that time, I was at Navigant Consulting, a partner at Navigant, and we only worked in life sciences and biotech. That's all we did. So we start applying it to critical challenges in the biotech space. We had big clients like J&J and Pfizer and Novartis, and it was really, really great to apply that and help them. Then I went over to a firm called Booz. At the time, Booz was a premier management consulting firm. You had Booz, McKinsey, BCG, and Bain. And then we were applying this across every industry because it's completely agnostic. And then we got clients like Coca-Cola, Amazon, um, Ikea, uh, Amex. And, and But we also still did a lot in the um, uh, in the healthcare space. And we also, as you mentioned earlier, uh, we started to partner with Professor Duggan and we took the approach we developed using his theories and we designed and co-taught an innovation lab at Columbia Business School with the MBA students. Um, and we were acquired, Booz was acquired by PwC. Uh, and so I stayed there for about 18 months while the acquisition was happening. And that's when we left and we started Recombinators in 2015. And we've been applying our precedent-driven approach across industries uh, for the last eight years. And also, as you mentioned, for the last two and a half years, we've now been teaching our uh, PDI at Stanford Graduate School of Business in the Executive Education Program. So that's my background. Um, and, um, you know, we can definitely go into more detail around the precedent-driven approach for your viewers. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. And I know we're not going to get into the whole course today, but I think the highlights and summaries that you're going to provide is going to be very valuable uh, to this audience. So, um, yeah, thank you. Okay. So I'll just jump right in, right? Sure. Let's jump okay. right in. So this is a this is a really cool slide. Uh, I'm I'm sure many of your your viewers will know what Google Ngram is, but it's one of the coolest apps. They essentially can you know um, uh, grab data from you know Google has digitized most of the textbooks in the world, and you can research what was happening in history. So we look back in history, and as you would expect, business efficiency was the absolute. Uh, priority for businesses throughout the majority of the of the um, 1900s. And it made sense, right? It was all about improving efficiency, uh, getting more scale, uh, uh, improving the margin, uh, because uh, companies and industries were really able to insulate themselves, you know, cost of capital, uh, all of the expertise, uh, the, the, the systems that they would build to really inoculate themselves from, from disruption. But that all started to change uh, as, the, as the economy became global. Now, capital was easier to access. Um, who would have guessed a tiny company like Dollar Shave Club could disrupt a, a dominant market leader like Gillette? Well, when they were able to get manufacturing done very quickly, contract manufacturing and other markets, uh, and they were able to advertise directly to consumers, that really changed everything. And, and now innovation became the top priority, not only for startups who are looking to build a space and take from the market leaders, but also for market leaders who could be much more easily disrupted from startups. So, um, and you can see that, uh, and to this day still, uh, over 90% of Fortune 500 companies have innovation as one of their top three priorities that will ensure their success. And this is highlighted in the left side of the screen, which was a great study by Accenture. And they found that oh, that same exact number of CEOs and senior executives believe that their company's future success depends on their ability to innovate. And I want to stress something, Ray. This is not only product innovation. I'm not saying that product innovation isn't essential. It is. But um, innovation across the uh, corporate continuum is essential. Strategic innovation, where you're facing critical challenges, for instance, in biotech, right? Uh, lack of cost transparency, conflicting incentives across all the key stakeholder groups, uh, innovating within a highly regulated system. These are all critical challenges amongst many others in biotech that require innovative thinking. However, as we say on this slide, we, we're facing an innovation crisis in biotech and in every industry, almost that same 90% 
of uh, CEOs in a PwC study of over 1,300 CEOs across 68 countries feel that their people and their organizations are unable to innovate. So we say, based on this, this um, disconnect between the, the high percentage who believe innovation will determine their success and the also very high percentage who say currently they are unable to innovate at the corporate or individual level, an innovation crisis exists. So the question is, how does innovation actually happen? And that's what you'll see on this slide. And as you said, Ray, this is a very condensed version of a talk we give called How Innovation Happens. Uh, but if any of your viewers want to see more information, please, they can click on our website, they can send us an email, and we're happy to share the whole presentation. We're very open uh, with that content. I appreciate these... that, Nadim. I do have a question, actually. You, sure. you addressed something very important. You said yeah. there's different types of innovation, including strategy innovation, uh, strategic innovation. Um, I was also thinking about process innovation, the way things are just done, the like process internal companies uh, the processes that they have in order to get things done, that innovation can be kind of challenging because it would force these uh, staff or employees to change the way they've been always doing things in the first place. So I don't know if you have any context to share around like process innovation specifically. I, I, I do. Uh, first of all, let me say, we believe in what you just said so much. We started an innovative operations practice, so processes uh, in 2022. So we believe that's the next frontier of innovation. But you're right, Ray, clearly Six Sigma, the Toyota 5Y, things like that have been exceptional tools for process innovation, but we would argue they're incremental in nature. And that's not a bad thing, but there's some really big uh, efficiencies that we believe can be realized from a process perspective, if you look across the whole supply chain, especially in biotech, Ray. So some companies, some industries are better at innovating on the op side, but many of them still see innovation as a product only or customer engagement type approach. But we we believe that innovative ops is essential. And one other area I'll throw in with that too is innovating around people. Because we've been writing for a few years now that this people existential threat before COVID, before COVID, uh, we actually, uh, we have a saying, you know, people over product. You could have the best product in the world that would have ensured you success in the past. But now if you can't you know, attract, uh, a recruit and retain the best talent, that's going to be a real challenge. And, and things are changing very rapidly uh, around, you know, getting and keeping the best talent. So that's a great question. Thank you, Ray. Um, so back to the three, what we call fundamental realities about how innovation happens. These might not sound like rocket science, but when you think about them and apply them, it will really change the way conventional strategy is done. The first one is, innovation begins with framing your critical challenge in a new way. This is very different than how I was taught in, in the corporate world and many other people were taught in the corporate world, right? Uh, it, we, we really were looking at, yes, we would look at our challenges, we would do our SWOT analysis, but then we would go right into our conventional strategic pro, uh, uh, planning process. But if you're facing a challenge, that you've been trying to solve for six months, 12 months, two years, three years, and you've been addressing it conventionally over and over, you're really gonna have to think about a different way to address that challenge. And the first step is framing the challenge in a new way. You know, Einstein said if he had 60 minutes to solve the biggest problem in the world, he'd spend 55 minutes on the problem and five on the solution. That's the opposite of what I've seen in corporate America. You know the saying, your biggest uh, strength can be your biggest weakness. What I love about you know uh, the corporate world is there's a problem, especially in the American culture. We can fix it. Whatever it takes, we'll fix it. We'll we'll figure out a solution, and that's a great thing. But if you've been trying to do it over and over, you really look need to look at that problem in a new way. Um, the and and this is also what we call the rub, right? Because you remember earlier where we said uh, the vast majority of companies and people want to innovate, but also that same 90% can't do it. We believe it's because of this. It's not because they're not really smart or they don't want to innovate, but it's so hard to look outside of your own expertise. Because I'll speak for myself. 
we deal with clients who have 10, 20 years of expertise in their respective domains. And it's so hard for them to look at their problem in a new way because they know it so deeply from, from every conventional angle. Um, so uh, once you've reframed your problem, then the second piece is what we call creative recombination or another way of saying it, there's no such thing as a new idea. And um, you know, uh, Bill Duggan, Professor Duggan did some amazing work uh, in this space. And then we've been doing the research ourselves for the last 20 years. But what you'll find is that some of the greatest innovations of all time were not new to the world ideas, but the people who had the brilliance to break the problem into pieces um, and then look in what we would call disparate places, not the obvious locations, but very disparate places for anyone, anytime, anywhere who solved the piece of the problem. And then the brilliance is number one, recognizing those solutions as relevant to your situation, and then figuring out a way to recombine them and apply them today in your industry and your setting with your constraints. Uh, so that's really what we do at Recombinators. We help our clients think about the problem in a new way, reframe it, and then we deconstruct it and disassociate it, and then look for examples of anyone, anytime, anywhere who solved it. And I'm going to share with you a database in a bit called Lucy, where we've accumulated all of these precedents, over 15,000 of them in the last 17 years, uh, connected to all different types of challenges. And then the third piece um, has to do with who owns the innovation. And what we're saying is innovation cannot be delegated. What we're not saying, Ray, is the CEO needs to work with a junior brand manager to solve that brand problem. What we are saying is if you have an enterprise existential threat that you are dealing with, then the senior team needs to be involved, not in just talking about the problem, but thinking about you know, how you can come up with a creative solution, maybe uh, absorbing some of these innovative precedents in different domains and working with your team to recombine them. Otherwise, otherwise, people are going to bring you an idea, a really brilliant idea, and you're not going to see how it's relevant uh, to your industry. The, the most obvious example of that is, is um, uh, Howard Schultz with Starbucks when, you know, he was, he, a lot of people don't know that he worked at Starbucks. He, he didn't found it. And he brought the owners this concept of a, uh, of the Starbucks, you know, coffee shop. And they said, you're crazy, Howard, that will never work in the US. And he tried for 18 months to convince them of that. They didn't accept it. And then he left and he developed the the, the chain himself. And then he bought the logo uh, later on. So that's the third principle um, that you really need to be engaged in the, the idea of being developed. And don't have a ton of time to go through this now, but there's so much evidence behind this. You see Bill Duggan on the uh, business innovation on the bottom left of the screen. I already mentioned Bill and the great work he did and the book he wrote called Strategic Intuition. Uh, he leveraged some of the amazing work that Professor Kandel did, who won the Nobel Prize for figuring out how our brains really work overturning the whole left brain, right brain concept, but uh, but um, doing what Professor Kandel called this, you know, memory banks in our brain. You're confronted with a problem, you're slightly distracted, and then your brain searches through all of your memory banks, and then you have these aha moments, right? Um, so he did uh, really groundbreaking work there. And then uh, Lauren Nordgren, who we also work with at Kellogg, who, who did a ton of work around the psychology of innovation and how you can embed that within the organization. So a lot of evidence underpinning uh, this really cool approach. I like the key learnings on the slide, actually. Maybe we can go through them in some more detail, especially like the, I guess, all of them, like the first one being there's no such thing as the analytical left and creative right brain. It's sort of like a more of like a mesh, I would think. And then uh, the second or the third point here, under stress, this is important. Under stress, yeah. your mind jumps to whatever, to what you already know. And I Correct. think that's a, a situation a lot of people fall under, unfortunately. So you want to um, you know break that down a little bit more? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great pickup, Ray. And, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Everyone's trying to innovate and they want to, but uh, we get called in when nothing else has worked. So the stress level is extremely high. And um, so people just default to what they already know. It even happens when they call us in and they innovate it. We innovate with them. We have a concept called the backslide where people will kind of backslide to what they're already doing. That's why it's so essential so essential 
to actually build this these many examples of someone who solved a similar problem as yours, uh, draw the parallels, and then work with them to develop a solution that can work in their situation, in their time frame, in their industry. Because otherwise, otherwise, it's going to be really, really hard for them to innovate, even though they're really trying to do it. Yeah, and even just being cognizant of it is the first step. Like for instance. We'll give someone, when we're going to do a creative recombination workshop with them, where we work with these precedents, we'll give them the material two weeks in advance. And we'll tell them, read it, put it down. Don't read it for two days. Then read it again and then go do something, right? So we're trying to replicate some of these some of these learnings in the approach. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And the, the other one, since you brought it up, Ray, it's really important because I can't tell you how many times someone said to me, Innovation is a new to world idea that's never happened before, right? And they and and that's the bottom one. Uh, so inspiration comes from studying the past and the present, not from imagining the future. All of these great thinkers, uh, Newton, Einstein, Picasso, Jobs, every one of them uh, will talk about focusing on the challenge, not focusing on some future state that's not connected to the challenge. That's really, really essential. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up as well. Yeah. I totally agree. So given all that, I won't spend a lot of time here, but this is the approach that we developed using those fundamental realities. So hopefully this is pretty intuitive to your listeners now. The first one is framing the problem. So we go, of course, we'll start with all the conventional data. We'll interview all the people. We'll get their perspective. But then we we outline the parameters. We have a saying, innovation loves constraints. Some people think it's the opposite, but it's actually... It's great to have constraints. It's good to know timeline, budget, you know, uh, um, uh, capabilities, things like that are really essential. Uh, but then at the end of the day, uh, we work with our clients to pick the one or two most critical challenges that if you could mitigate them would generate the greatest return. Sometimes when we've been called in, uh, one uh, client in, in, in particular, one of the biggest beverage companies in the world super talented team, they called us in, they were trying to do 10 things at once. And they were doing amazing things for all the areas, but they were getting zero return on their overall challenge. So we really helped them get down to those one or two things. Once you've done that, and you've selected the one or two challenges, then we deconstruct them, we break them into pieces, which any good strategist would do. But then the art of the PDI approach comes in, we disassociate them from the industry context. And, th and that forces us, remember we said before, it's really hard for people to look outside their own box. It forces us and our client teams to think of their problems much more broadly. And then we use those disassociated angles to search for precedents. And we typically come up with a hundred cases, all pieces of, uh, all different examples of people who solve pieces of our client's challenge. And then we filter them to the most relevant and innovative ones. And then we work with our clients to recombine them to come up with innovative ideas. So and the, then and only then will we do the, the uh, implementation plan. So this is really interesting. And I'm trying to apply it into how the biotech pharma industry kind of works and how if you're a biotech founder looking at a small molecule, for example, and you think you have the problem in mind, right? You know, potentially treating a specific disease. Um how would you go about this process for someone like that? And maybe you've done this before, you know, at different pharma companies. Would you like yeah. to sort of like break down like a yeah? So, so since it's strategic innovation, we haven't done this at the molecular level, but we have done it at the process level. Like how you know how do you go about um, product discovery? How do you vet them uh, early? You know, uh, late phase one, early phase two in the marketplace to see if there's gonna be potential for them. But our, our, our really biggest areas have been uh, once uh, companies have a product or a process or or they, they, they need a, a better product or a process, we'll help them figure out what all the pain points are with their current product, customer engagement, their, their processes. We'll put it through this process. So we've done it for cell and gene therapy, which was a new to world, um uh, uh business model very new to world business model you know getting getting um uh you know blood from a patient uh turning it around in three days 
uh, building it, getting it back to the patient. You know, that was very innovative. We're doing it now in the psychedelic space. Uh, we've done it significantly in rare disease where um, even uh, patients or physicians will be seeing someone for years and not know they have this rare disease. So how could we get patients to physicians faster and help the physicians recognize that rare disease sooner so they could start getting treatment? So those are some of the challenges that we've applied this approach to. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the rare disease space, it's specifically very interesting because there are so many. It's like the long tail of diseases, right? There's many of them. Uh, however, few patients for each disease um, in most cases. So it's interesting. It's an interesting problem. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's completely agnostic. You, It works across industries. It works across functions. Like, you know, if you're in manufacturing or in uh, commercial or regulatory um, or on the consumer side, you know, retail, uh, it sales, it, it doesn't matter. We've used this for, you know, building skills development. Like we've had a client say to us, you know, we're, we're marketing in the 21st century and we have 20th century marketers. So what did we do? We studied the greatest marketers of all time. And then we extracted um, the, the traits that they, that they uh, embodied and then the specific um, strategies and tactics they used. And then we looked at this company and we saw what their needs were. And then we built uh, an approach around that. But even skills development can be, can be uh, uh, enhanced by using an approach like this. Yeah. And Ray, there's one thing I really want to say that's so important, especially with the whole left brain, right brain thing. You know, I've been doing this a bit longer than you. I remember you would get, you people would get designated. Oh, she's the creative one. Oh, he's the analytical one. And I'm not saying that some people, some people aren't more creative or analytical, but to think that not everyone, not everyone can be innovative. That's incorrect. Everyone can absolutely be creative and innovative if you follow the right approach. It's, let me it's ask absolutely you, possible. Let me ask you a question. What do you think about the MBTI personality measurements or um, the Myers-Briggs test? Well, I think they're awesome. They don't only, I mean, you know, I think I had four or five of them when I was at J&J. You had so many of them. And they're super insightful. And there's so much you can learn about yourself. But um, then being able to check how innovative you are, maybe they can check, you know, how well you understand these principles and apply them. Right. Because that's what Professor Duggan saw when he looked at the greatest innovators in history, which, by the way, let me go there. <laughs> um, you know, these great innovators, I think one of the things that made them so brilliant was they understood this in their prime intuitively. You know, you you asked me a question like, what does strategic intuition mean? How, what does that mean in practice? You know, well, that means that first you understand you don't have the answers but you really need to think about your problem. And then you need to be open, really open to finding inspiration uh, in, in different places. You know, uh, uh, Professor Duggan, his first class was called Napoleon's Glance. And I audited it after I got to know him. And I always heard how brilliant Napoleon was, but I never understood why. But then when I went through his class, I saw he studied military history, a, a millennia's worth of military history. He would go into battle knowing that conventionally he didn't have a chance, but then he would just look for situations that presented themselves in battle and he would take lessons from 700 years ago and say, if I apply this in this situation, I'll have the upper hand, right? So, and and that that's really what strategic intuition is, uh, looking for those patterns and looking for those situations. And you can see whether it's Henry Ford or Einstein or Newton, my personal favorite, Picasso, you know, great artists borrow, and, excuse me, good artists borrow and great artists steal. And contemporary thinkers too, like Jobs and Hastings and Google was developed through a creative recombination as well, right? So there's just examples all around. And we have several hundred uh, examples of great thinkers who've, who've understood this in their prime. Yep. Great list. Love this. Yeah. So I, I won't spend time here, but if people are interested, uh, they can go to our website and we have this beta uh, called uh, Lucy, uh, Just Ask Lucy. And it's really cool because you could literally go in and click on, we have what we call the 10 meta challenges from, from uh, growth to uh, culture, to differentiation, customer engagement, digital disruption. And you can click on the one and then it will give you a list of what we call deconstructed challenges. And then click onto that and it has the disassociated ones. And then it will eventually lead you to um, several hundred of these 
of these uh, precedents that we've been developing over the last 17 years. And it just it, it can inspire you to um, uh, to find innovative solutions. It's really awesome. Um, I think I'm, I'm I'm assuming this is using AI to some degree, right? It's not at all. So huh. that's a great question, Ray. We um, uh, uh, before generative AI, we've been working on this now for about seven years. We built this because doing this approach, doing this approach, especially the create phase with our clients was so heavy. It would take four or five consultants, six to eight weeks. So we wanted to try to make it more efficient. Uh, and we we used the AI that was available at the time. And I can't tell you how how um, unimpressive the results were. Uh, it was less than what a kindergartner could do. Uh, we've since tried it again with ChatGPT and some of the other AI tools. It's it's better, but it can't it can't build the precedence the way we do, where we have to maybe look at 15, 20 sources to articulate the background, the insights, the return, and then and then we overlay the applicability for our client situation. So it's not using any AI yet, but we will be building it in the next year. You know, I wonder if you have if you take all the data that you've generated throughout the last you know decade or so of doing seventeen this, years, yeah, seventeen years. I'm sure that data can. Uh, AI would love to ingest that data. And yeah, we're we're not going to put that online. That's right. the don't one put thing it on ChatGPT. Yeah. Right, right. Otherwise, yeah. it's not yours anymore. Um, yeah. That's fair. Continue. Let's continue. Yeah. Well, th that's it on the overall presentation. Perfect. Um, yep. First of all, thank you so much. Great slides. I have a few questions that can kind of tie into what you talked about and sort of relate it to the healthcare system, biotech, and things like that. Um, so the first question I actually had was, what is the most broken part mm. of the broken healthcare system? Yeah, unfortunately, that's a long answer, right? But I'll, I'll keep it short. I'll, I'll pick the the three that uh, that we see the most. There's a lot of areas, right? The especially when you compare the U.S. system to the rest of the developed world system. You know, we're we're one of only two or three uh, multi-payer systems, where the other ones are are much more. Uh, controlled and um, and uh, less complex. But the, the three, I would say, the first is the lack of cost transparency. And you might say, well, why the hell is that a, a, a broken part of the system? Well, when no one knows what anything costs, and it, it makes it really, really hard to figure out, you know, uh, where value is coming from, uh, uh, where you can become more efficient. Uh, there's so many, there's so many difficult um, uh, difficult uh, related issues that stem from that one, Ray. So that would be the first. The second is the conflicting incentives of all the key stakeholders. So I'm talking about manufacturers, providers, of course, payers, of course, patients, government, and, and many other stakeholders in, in the, the, um, the healthcare system in the U.S., uh, and there's, and unfortunately, even though a lot of our innovation work in my time on the industry side was trying to find those shared, those, those shared incentives, those shared objectives. And there are a lot of them, but because they're so conflicted, whether you're looking at, you know, uh, a pharma manufacturer and a payer, right? Uh, there are a lot of ways that they could work together and they do. But at the end of the day, the manufacturer, you know, is investing a significant amount of time and money at very high risk. So they need to get a return, but the payers need to minimize what they pay for these products to provide the, the best possible, you know, insurance for, for their, uh, for their um, uh, patients. And then of course you have the providers who are kind of caught in between. And now, you know, that's taking on such different uh, models as well. You have fully integrated systems. You still have independent providers. Uh, you know they're uh, they're incentivized in very different ways. Often the same providers have three or four different incentive models depending on what insurance that they're covering. So as you if you can imagine, that really makes it hard to move in one direction and get things resolved. Um, and then the last piece I would say is innovating. Uh, within a highly regulated system. It makes it really, really tough. I mentioned the backslide earlier, right? It's so hard uh, to innovate in a system where you have, um, you know, privacy, legal, regulatory uh, constraints, which are real and appropriate that need to be addressed. Uh, and, and I think even though it's hard, it's probably more hard internally and in the mind of the people uh, in the system than it actually is in the system itself. 
But those are three that really jump out at me. Yeah, no, I appreciate those answers. And if you did have a magic wand, and now let's think about the regulatory, the third problem you mentioned, that um, regulation might inhibit or prevent true innovation. If you had a magic wand, what rule of law or what guidelines or um, regulatory advice can you, or yeah, I guess law would you want to introduce or mm. remove or modify? <laughs> yeah. And it's tough because one thing I think about is the, the privacy laws around patient privacy data. Yeah, which would be outside of regulatory, right? That's more legal and and uh, uh, compliance. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, that's a big one. You know, I have to say, when I think about all the players, manufacturers, providers, payers, patients, government. So I put the so if you're saying regulations like the FDA, right? Uh, of hope bringing products to market, they're pretty good at what they do. Now it can take a while. I recognize that. But, you know, people's safety are at risk here. You need to get the product right. Uh, so you really have to be sure there. And they've done a great job, for instance, with rare disease, right? So I think the bigger the bigger challenges are, you know, on the on the provider side, uh, on the, uh, getting manufacturers and payers to work together, um, you know, finding more innovative ways to get everyone insured. Right. I think that's really an area where I think we have a huge room, a, a huge area for for innovation, especially when the richest country in the history of the world has so many people who are uninsured and don't have access to medicines, which I know is a, a huge piece of, of, of the Vibecast and Vibe Bio's existence. Right. And I believe that, too. That was always a frustrating thing for, for me, even though the companies we worked for were always had compassionate clearance and did everything they could to make drugs available. It's very frustrating to see so many large, large numbers of people that don't have access, easy access to these medications. I think that's really where the most innovation needs to be done. Absolutely. Accessibility to treatments is huge. And I think uh, we're getting better at it. I think I think even the digital revolution has helped with that. There are patient communities now that can connect across the country, across the world, um, sharing their experiences. And Unless the manufacturer, the payer and the government work together with that, it won't be achieved. Right. Because that's, that's why you see it in other countries. But those are very different markets with different philosophies. They're one market system. They're the one payer systems where the government pays for everything. And um, I don't know if the U.S. would ever adapt that model, but even if they didn't, if they could at least come together to ensure, you know, minimal coverage. And I know with Medicaid and Medicare, you you have that, uh, but it's certainly not efficient, Ray. It's certainly not efficient. My next question, actually, you've addressed, but I think we can ask it anyways and see if you can um, clarify a little bit. What does it mean to innovate and how can it be measured? I think the measuring yeah. measuring part is interesting. Yeah, that's a good question. The second part is a little bit more complex than the first one. The first one, you know, innovation is one of those things. It's even though everyone wants to innovate, when we engage them, people are very skeptical. And I get it. If I had a dime for every meeting I went into when I was on the industry side and we put all the colorful stickies up on the wall and met for four hours and then nothing happened and we called it an innovation workshop. Right. So at the end of the day, innovation is finding a relatively um, innovative solution to a problem and implementing that problem in the market and seeing some return. That's that's as simple as we as we uh, define it. Now there's different types. There's incremental. There's breakthrough. Um, there's strategic. There's product innovation. But at the end of the day, they're all defined the same way. But I do want to just focus on that word relative for a minute, right? Because innovation is relative. So you know, PNG might be doing something that they don't consider too innovative with customer engagement or, you know, reaching out to consumers or maybe a payment model, um, any anything that they might be doing. But in pharma or biotech, that might be relatively very innovative to what everyone is doing in that space. So that's really important because, you know, the innovation threshold is very different depending on the company and the industry that you're working in and even the area that you're working, like you mentioned ops earlier. There's some industries that are extremely innovative in ops, like the uh, uh, autom automotive industry, where others are not, they're pretty conventional, right? Measuring it, in most cases, in most cases, we've used conventional measurements because of the definition. It's an idea solving a challenge that you can put in the market and measure. So it's, you know, it's classic ROI, consumer sentiment, state, you know, critical stakeholder feedback. 
But in some cases, innovative solutions may require innovative forms of measurement. For example, we helped um, clients implement innovative initiative that helped them reduce caregiver burden in dementia, right? And the it was really a great project. We applauded this client, you know, because they couldn't, they knew prospectively it was going to be hard to show a direct return between that and their Alzheimer's product, but they believe so highly and that the, the caregiver burden with dementia is significant. Comorbidity, all of the things that happen there. So they were doing this for the right reasons, uh, but they couldn't track back the exact business impact. However, we were able to assess, you know, the, the healthcare providers feedback, overall company and brand perceptions, which they believed had an indirect impact to how the company was perceived and how the product performed in the marketplace. So we sometimes we do need to develop innovative metrics uh, to, to track uh, innovative ideas. But most of the time, Ray, you're able to, to utilize uh, uh, conventional metrics. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer to, to see the result. That's interesting. Um, one thing that we've been seeing in recent years, especially, is patients being included in the drug development process. So how critical is it for pharma and pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies to include patients in their drug development process? And does that lead to better innovation? Yeah, we think so. We we absolutely think so. But, you know, you're we 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 have a saying we're innovative strategic partner ob obsessed with, you know, with the end user, with the consumer. So, um, yes, we think it's essential, uh, not only in, you know, at Primarily, it's done from a disease state perspective. You you have to understand the disease from every angle uh, to build products for it and then to do clinical trials. And manufacturers do that very well. But I think understanding it more, more holistically, their, everything they're going through in their lives, their caregivers and their families, things like that, including those things, would certainly lead to not only better products, but certainly better processes access to medicine, some of the some of the bolt-on areas where we've been focusing a lot of our innovative efforts, especially in the last five to seven years, when you look at digital enhancements to medications or digital apps that are getting approved now by you know, the FDA, things like that, I think you would recognize the need for them much earlier in the process and, and really even getting product to, to market, the patient support programs. These large manufacturers spend hundreds of millions of dollars on these patient support programs, hundreds of millions of dollars. We do a lot of innovation within those programs. So imagine how much better those programs can be designed earlier in the process and their 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 patients and their families would get so much return from them. And it would be a win-win for the manufacturer as well. So we couldn't, we couldn't uh, agree with that statement more uh, that it, not just looking at the disease, but really looking at the, the patient and their family and their community is going to lead to much better solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And one area within that process is the clinical trials, you know, phase one, two, and three. Um, getting that, getting the right patients to find that trial and be part of it is actually rather difficult. It's not as easy as you would imagine for some indications specifically, and especially in rare disease. In especially case. in rare disease. You took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, being able to identify these people and know who they are more effectively is something of a problem in the industry. So what innovation techniques can we think about even right now to kind of you know, catalyze yeah, I can't, more I can't share the client name. I wish I could because I'm so proud of the work they did and we helped them with this. But using advanced AI techniques to identify uh, a patients with rare disease who, you know, some some rare diseases are very obvious and, you know, everyone knows right away what the rare, rare what the rare diseases are. You know, we we did a big project in a in, you know, in the um, the growth syndrome where people have uh, enlarged you know, parts of their body externally and internally, it's very obvious. But other areas, the, the diseases mimic, you know, uh, uh, symptoms of very common diseases or even things like, you know, headaches or things like that. And it will take years uh, to bring, uh, to for those patients to understand what they have, for their clinicians to diagnose them appropriately and for them to get them treatment. So we've done some really cutting edge work with a few of our clients, one of our clients in particular, around using AI really understanding these consumers, being able to uh, find them online at what we call activate them, get them into the system, you know, uh, a year to two years 
earlier than they typically would have been in the system. And, and that's just a great thing for those patients and their families to understand what they're dealing with, to get treatment earlier so that they can live their most normal life possible. That's one of the areas that we, we've worked on already. Yeah, something that you mentioned that brought me an idea is the fact that it takes sometimes years for these patients to be diagnosed. So even just innovation in diagnosing would be another part that I'm sure you've been involved with. Well, that's that's essentially the 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 project that I was just sharing with you. Even before diagnosis, there's awareness, right? So right. even before diagnosis, oh, this might not be just a headache or it might not just be stress. I actually, my child or myself, I might actually have something that's not too well known. And how do you do that? How do you get people into the system? And, and it's both sides of the coin. It's the patient and their families. And it's also the clinician because, you know, clinicians, I empathize with them greatly, Ray, when it comes to rare disease. They want to help everyone, but think about the system they're working in, even specialists. They don't have an hour, an hour and a half to spend, especially when the, the diagnosis is not obvious, right? And, and it's hidden. Um, so helping them uh, uh, potentially identify people who could be a who, who could be dealing with a very rare disease where the symptoms aren't obvious, that's very important as well. You mentioned earlier today in this conversation that you're working in the psychedelic space as well. So you're helping some clients in the psychedelic space. Yeah. Do you mind going into more detail about that? And since it's such a new area, well, it's uh, currently new. It used to be new like 40 years ago, but now it's making a comeback. <laughs> well, right? it, was never, it was never regulated. It never had FDA approval. There's one product now, uh, S-ketamine at, at J&J at Janssen uh, that has approval. But as, as you know, you know, ketamine, they have these ketamine centers all over the country, I believe over 500 of them. But you're going to see them starting to fold because they're unregulated. Mm -hmm. But now you have companies out there like MindMed and um, uh, Compass. There's a few companies where you have you know, amazing people who've been at the forefront of this space for decades, and they recognize uh, how much benefit some of these psychedelics like ketamine or, uh, you know, an LSD or others can have with people who are struggling with severe depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, you know, some really, really severe problems where people have not been able to function for a long time. And now these products are starting to be studied in formal clinical trials. And we're helping we're helping one of those companies figure out, you know, what's the best way to bring this product to market? Because think about it, Ray, you know, now uh, most products you either take with a pill, some you take with an infusion, some you might have some level of oversight, you know, whether it's an, an, an infusion center, but this one requires a lot of really specific, unique situations. The physician needs to understand the, the consumer, the, the, the patient, the patient's family. You have to be monitored anywhere from, you know, two to six to eight hours. Uh, you, the people who are monitoring you need to have a very specific skill set. And that's the post-treatment follow-up. So we're trying to figure out what is the, the best model that's the best for the patient, the best for the healthcare system, the best for the manufacturer. Uh, we're trying to help develop that model that's scalable, right? Because it's going to have to be scalable uh, throughout the country. So that's what we're working on now. But it's it's early days. None of these products are approved, but they're all entering phase three later this year and early next year. So you can expect them in the market probably in two two and a half years or so. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, what kind of innovation are you seeing in the biotech funding landscape? So just the ability for young companies, early stage companies to have the right amount of money to actually perform the research and do the development work necessary to get drugs. In the pipeline. You're, you're still seeing it at the product level, Ray. You know, when you think about pharma, right, think about how farmers evolved. It went from mass market products, then it went to specialty products, um, and, and then it went to move to oncology, right, uh, and then rare disease, right, and now you have like cell and gene therapy, Right. This and then you're going to start seeing things like the psychedelics and 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 others. So uh, we did an assessment uh, about six months ago about where all the funding is going. And you the 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 CGT the cell and gene therapy it looks like a, the biggest heat map you've ever seen. Right. There's just so much funding. Billions and billions of dollars are coming into this space uh, because you know fund uh, investors. On, on some level, certainly they want to do right by patients, but they need to look at return as well. And when you look at the price point 
and the, the, the profit margin. That's, you know, why pharma's evolved from mass market to these highly specialized uh, areas. Uh, that's where you see most of the money going. You also see a lot in rare disease as well. Um, and, and then you're also seeing some in, in digital therapies. But I have to say, Ray, we've done a lot of work in the digital therapy space over the last, six, uh, say, five to seven years. And many of those products, while very promising and they brought real benefits to patients, they weren't able to uh, monetize that because the system's just not ready for it. You know, we talked about all the challenges earlier, the payer system and everything like that and regulations and, and how you get reimbursed for things like this. It, it, they just, most of them have not seen a return, but you're, you're seeing a lot of funding happening there as well. Very interesting. Do you think that like the recent economic um, downturn, you can say, has affected funding in biotech? I know like there are many companies that use, for example, SVB or Silicon Valley Bank as their um, primary banking institution. So I'm wondering if any of that financial industry chaos is affecting biotech funding from your perspective. And I know, you know, you're not. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Maybe some of the biotechs out in California, for sure. Um, I think the economy and the uncertainty of the economy, you know, I, I speak to many of our clients who, who run large pharma, mid-sized pharma company. And, and, and from my own perspective, I've never, we've never quite seen anything like this, right? The last time you, you know, in 2008, nine, you had a clear recession, but here you have, you know, the most profitable years these companies have ever had, but, um, but everyone's uh, expecting a recession. These companies have frozen their budgets. They're, they're, you know, they, they've cut back oh, yeah. thousands and thousands of people, but at the same time, the unemployment rate is less than 3.5% and there's a battle for talent. So all these things are happening. We, I've never quite seen this array of challenges happen at the same time. So, you know, the good companies are always going to invest if they see a good asset with tremendous potential, they're going to acquire that. And the big companies have access to capital in a lot of different places. But I think the smaller biotechs would probably be affected by it more than the mid and large companies. Fantastic. Nadim, I just want to thank you so much again for joining the Vibecast today. I really appreciate it. Uh, your insights were phenomenal, very um, interesting and engaging. Uh, so thanks for sharing more about your experience and the precedent-driven innovation model. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? No, thanks for having us, Ray. Really appreciate it. And good luck on your end, you guys. I really believe in in, in what VibeBio is about, and we wish you the best of luck. And hopefully we can, we can collaborate together in the future. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of VibeCast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share a review and rating on your favorite podcast player. If you are working towards your next round of financing for your drug development program, we'd be thrilled to connect with you and explore how we can offer our assistance. Check out VibeBio.com for more information. You can also find videos of these podcasts on the VibeBio YouTube channel. We look forward to hearing from you.